I'm so glad you're joining us for this episode of Street Soldiers on staying alive and preventing suicide. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. You can find me and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Lisa Evers, and you can catch up on all of our Street Soldiers episodes, both Hot 97 Radio and Fox 5 TV, free of charge on my website, lisaevers.com. Now in this episode, we're focusing on staying alive and preventing suicide. This is National Suicide Prevention Month, and we wanted to have an open and honest conversation about a topic that's been taboo for a very long time. And in other situations, it makes people feel very, very uncomfortable. Now for more than a decade, suicide rates in the United States have been steadily increasing. And I found out more than half the gun deaths in America every day are from suicides. Overall, there are twice as many suicides as murders. So there's a lot of statistics behind this. According to the CDC, it's the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. But some age groups and some demographics are affected and more vulnerable than others. We're going to find out why that is, especially with children and young adults ages 10 to 34. So let's find out what our panel has to say about this. Joining me is Everett McCain. He's a re retired Port Authority Police Department Sergeant. His 20-year-old daughter, Annalise, took her life. And Everett, thank you so much for being with us and speaking on this. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me here. Thank you. Also with us is, and of course, our condolences over, over your you. daughter, because I'm sure that's something for a parent you never get over. Nope, you don't. No. Um, Dr. Lisa English is with us. She's a clinical therapist. Dr. Lisa, great to have you with us. Nice to be here. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Dr. Norman Freed. He's a clinical psychologist, a trauma specialist, and professor at JTS Columbia. Dr. Norman, great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank great you so much. Here. Dr. Lisa, when you look at the way our society as a whole talks about suicide, treats suicide, the way we cover it in the media, what strikes you about what you see? The fact that we don't necessarily put it in context. The fact that the fact that the matter is oh, close to a million people worldwide commit suicide. Fifty thousand people a year in the United States commit suicide. It is the leading, second leading cause of death for um, young people the age, between the ages of 10 and 25. And so this is a serious public health crisis. And because we aren't putting it in the context of a public health crisis, we're missing opportunities to address it. And Dr. Norman, when you look at how we treat it and de dealing with this every day in your practice, what do you think, we're, are, we, are we doing anything right or is everything wrong well, about I how actually, we're looking at it? I believe over the years that I've been working as a psychologist that we are getting closer to treating this situation a lot more like Dr. Elise would, would want us to. Um, we are um, recognizing and honoring that suicide is uh, an awful experience and is unfortunately becoming more and more in, uh, rampant as the years go on. We see it in, in, uh, in, in social media, we see it in our famous uh, TV stars and movie stars, and we are taking it much more seriously than we used to. Everett, tell us about Annalise and, and what happened with your daughter. Well, she was 20 years old, four months before she would have turned 21. She was away at school, living in North Carolina. And um, just one night, early Sunday morning, she took her own life. She jumped to her death. And we didn't see that coming. We, didn't, we had no clue, no clue that she would do something like that. And did she have, an, she was close to you and she was also close to her mother, yes, right? Yes, yes. I mean, I always told her, if you feel bad, if something's bothering you, don't hesitate to call me or your mom. You know, reach out to us all the time. You know, whether if you're upset about something, just reach out because we're there for you. And um, 
I guess when she decided to do that that early Sunday morning, she just saw no other way, and she didn't reach out. And then did, did you have, I mean, as a, as a, as a former first responder, as a, and you were in the unit that dealt with the most severe cases and the most uh, serious emergencies with the Port Authority Police Department, that must have made you feel horrendous that you couldn't be there to help her, oh, uh, even, even more so. Oh, even to this day, I'm like, wish I could have been there to stop her. I wish she could have, would have called me, called her mom. It was, I mean, I got the phone call in the middle of the night, like early Sunday morning, like around 3.30 in the morning that she was in the hospital. So, I mean, I wish she had called me or called her mom. Her mom lived in the same state, so just we could have maybe stopped her, and we couldn't. And you had no, so there were no signs of, no. of trouble or problems? Was she being treated for anything or nothing? Well, we found out afterwards when her mom went to clean out her apartment found out that she was taking a medication for depression. But we didn't know about that. And, it was, and, and of course, since she's 20, she could do it, do it yeah, on her own. Right. Dr. Norman, when you hear this story, there, there are other people, especially parents who've had children mm -hmm. take their lives. Um, and we appreciate your courage mm -hmm. you know, so much with, with, mm -hmm. with speaking with us. And I, I want to give out uh, um, the phone number, 1-800-273-TALK. That is the National Institute of Mental Health. That is emergency 24-hour, uh, fully staffed, 24-hour talk line if you're having suicidal thoughts, if you have any kind of issues, if you just need to talk to somebody, that they have trained professionals at that phone number. It's free of charge and can be anonymous, 1-800-273-TALK. Dr. Norman, whatever it said that we didn't see it coming, mm -hmm. that's something that I have heard from other parents who have lost their children. Right. Do you I, hear that? Absolutely. I hear it every day, unfortunately, in my practice. And first, I want to say, Everett, thank you for your honesty and your candor. And I do agree that for parents, we don't always see what might actually be going on inside of the psyche of our child. But there actually are some signs that psychologists or other experts might be on the lookout for that would still catch us by surprise, but we look in ways that parents don't. We don't want to see our children sad, so we don't necessarily see the things that they may be saying non-verbally or in symbolic language or through facial expressions or through re be becoming remote and, and pulling away. I, I call it, I, I came up with an acronym STAY, and those four words would be, is there an increase in use of substances? Is there substance abuse? Because that creates reckless behavior. T, is there a trauma that recently occurred? Is there something that happened that might have created a sense of despondency that is different than a typical day? A, affect, how is affect changing? Is the affect becoming more, more remote and blunted? Are they becoming less connected? And why, and for lack of another word, yonder? Have they gone yonder? Are they less attached to us? Are they not returning calls? Are they more involved in they their own They just see just disconnected. Right. Dr. Lisa, when you, you brought up the fact that it's the number two cause in, in this age group, you know, 10 to 24, 10 to 34. The, um, in, in terms of that age group in particular, we're talking about these young children. What, what causes a child at that age to do something like this? Well, one of the things we do know about suicide is that 90% of those who commit suicide um, are depressed and have been suffering with depression or managing depression for a long time. And so, um, as um, my colleague pointed out, like the signs are there. It's just that as people or caregivers or friends and family, we're not necessarily um, in tune to what those signs are and we dismiss them. And one of the things that often comes out when people are ready to commit suicide or thinking about suicide, they often say it. And so, 
it's important to be an active listener and speak with your family and friends when it and comes to, to things. And to pay attention if somebody says, I just, I just can't take it anymore. Right. I'm thinking about thinking and about doing it. And they do it for years. I mean, they can go on with this for like 10, 15, 20 years before they actually get to a completion. It's not easy right. to kill yourself. It really isn't. It may takes I, a lot of strength. May I add to that? Real quick, and then we'll take uh, a short break. We'll I ahead. just wanted to say that there are times when people don't mean it, but they say it, mm -hmm. and we must take it seriously, even if they're just using it as a type of speech. Right. Mm -hmm. We need to take every word you need, seriously. You need to pay attention. We're going to talk about how to take it seriously. Absolutely. When we come back, this is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. Yeah, Yo, you already know what it is, man. This is B.I.G. Shine, and this is the Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, real people only on Hot 97. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about staying alive and suicide prevention. Do you know what to do if someone close to you says they're thinking about it? You can tell them to call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-TALK. We have an amazing panel to get all into this issue. Let me bring them to you now. Joining us is Everett McCain. He's a retired Port Authority Police Department sergeant. His 28, uh, his 20-year-old daughter, Annalise, took her life. Everett, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. We really appreciate it. Also with us is Dr. Elisa English. She's a clinical therapist. Thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Also with us is Dr. Norman Freed. He's a clinical psychologist, a trauma specialist, and a professor at JTS Columbia. Dr. Norman, great to have you with us. Thank you. Great thank you so here. much. When you talk about taking it seriously, how do you know when somebody's just joking mm -hmm. You know, or making a comment because they're frustrated, or they had something very, something very, de you know, depressing and unpleasant happen to them, or when it's something you need to pay attention to. That's a wonderful question. Um, and what I would say is, a lot of us use it colloquially. Colloquially, we say, oh, "I wish I were dead. I want to be out of this life," but they don't mean that they want to be gone from this life. They want to be out of the moment of pain that they're in. And nevertheless, even if it's used in this kind of colloquial way, we need to take it seriously because quite possibly they're saying something and we may not be hearing it. Dr. Elisa, you were, you've worked throughout your career with many at-risk groups, different types of at-risk groups. The, in terms of taking it seriously, what do people need to know the most about that? I think when someone is really in a dark place, and you see that they're not really moving beyond that, they're not receiving any kind of treatment for it, they're ruminating on this idea, um, the suicide ideation is there, they're talking about it all the time, they seem to be disconnected, like um, my colleague pointed out, um, they're no longer engaging in activities that they once found pleasurable. Um, at that point, at, and I think we must be active listeners because we're so busy and caught up in our day-to-day -day life that we're not necessarily paying attention to those signs. Right. And um, if, if we, as the individuals that are there, the caregivers, because we are part of the cure, which we'll get to, right, in terms of relationships and how we can both be the poison, the disease, and the cure, right. um, we are the cure. And so if we begin to actively listen and, and pay attention to those who are around us that we care about, we can find, we can really find a way to eradicate this problem. Absolutely. Everett, w with your daughter, did you find out anything afterwards that, that helped you understand what had happened there? Um, we think, after talking with her mom, that the circumstances that led up to her ending her life, she may have broken up with a boyfriend who she only knew for a short period of time. And we also found out that I think she had told one of her friends, maybe I don't know how long before that happened, that if they broke up, she might end it all. We found that out later, too. Oh, wow. So, I mean, 
I don't know. I you don't really know don't for know. a fact, and and that what what is, is it like the broken heart? Is that is that a what tri what triggers it? Like There's, what you you say, Dr. Lisa said, you know, c people can be in this space for years and years before right. they actually act on it. Mm -hmm. right. Are there triggers, Dr. Th Norman? There are triggers, and they're specific to each particular person. Because remember, every one of us experiences responses to trauma in this life, and the most powerful uh, side effects of the trauma are a sense of disconnection from others and a sense of disempowerment. And so when we have some kind of traumatic event happen, even if it's just a bad day at work, we or a fight with someone we care about, we might accidentally become triggered and have a more primitive response and think about when things really were bad, and we go back to that time and suddenly we don't think so clearly. Stress and tension can actually make us think unreasonably, and suddenly suicidal ideation seems reasonable when it never is. When it never is. Dr. Lisa, with this young age group, with it, you know, 10, from 10-year-olds 10 up into people in their 20s and, and even early 30s being this most at-risk group, is social media playing any kind of a role in this in terms of making them feel pr under pressure? Well, social media, we always, like, we blame everything on social media. One thing that I think social media is certainly responsible for is that our children are becoming much more isolated, and as a result, they aren't connecting to the very individuals that are there to help them. And so, and because we think that they're home and they're safe, and mm. you know, we have some control, um, we've totally lost control because they're now totally being um, controlled by. The by the device, by the device, and right. they're they're on they're on the phone or they're on the tablet or whatever, and, and they could be sitting ways, next to the parent. That's right. They're being bullied in many ways. There's bullying going on. Things that social media has a lot of that. It also, in some ways, um, there's self-esteem issues because you're looking at everyone in their best life, right? And mm -hmm. so you start to question your life um, and the value of your life. And so, yeah, it plays a role, but the underlying issue is depression. And we need to really think about how we can reduce the right. stigma around mental illness and depression. And I think we can find our way to- Dr. Norman, are all, and those are, and those are great points. Dr. Norman, are, those, are all suicides the result of mental illness? No, I, absolutely not. Uh, there is, it's hard to know because they're not coming back to tell us what, what, what was going on in their minds. But right. we do know, unfortunately, we do know that there's a high, high percentage that comes from mental illness. Sometimes suicide is, is, a, is an impulsive act that actually was not really intended to be completed. Like with a small kid? Like a kid yes, might not so understand what it is? so I have patients whose children have actually killed themselves. How young? Uh, a fourteen-year-old mom walked in and saw her son hanging, and what was oh discovered God. from the police afterwards was that he really didn't want to do it. The way that he was found, there was a struggle on his own, and that he might have been just more curious to see what it may have felt like. But oftentimes these things occur, and so sometimes it's an impulsive act. But very often, the person who really wants to succeed at suicide has made his plan, has his materials, and has a history of having tried before. And so we have to be very clear when we. We talk about mental illness. What other factors are there? Is there a history of suicide attempts in the past? Is there a history of suicide success in family members? But Everett, with your daughter, with your daughter, there was no there was nothing, right? No, nothing at all. There was a and no, no one in your family on either on on either side. No, never. With, with or serious depression no. or anything like that. No one, no one, no nothing, none of that. 
So sometimes depression goes untreated and even unnoticed, and then we really fail the children in our care and our charge because we're not noticing what it is that they're asking for. And I want to just make a comment about what Dr. Elisa said in terms of the computers. There's a mirror neuron in our brains that actually provokes oxytocin. Mm -hmm. So when you and I look at each other in Which is the eyes, pleasure hormone. Yep. The pleasure the hormone. Pleasure so hormone. we feel as if we're being hugged just by looking at one another. Mm -hmm. I know how you feel about me by looking into your eyes, but when I look into a computer screen eight, ten hours a day, I'm not getting anything back. Mm -hmm. So I'm not oh, learning. Wow. Correct. So I'm not learning about the ethics and the values and the mores of our society. Yep. No one's telling me I'm okay. If anything, I'm thinking I'm not okay because you're not getting the validation none. from somebody saying, "Hey, the interesting do thing about the scenario that you laid out, um, you know, self-injury, injurious behavior in itself is a concern, right? Mm -hmm. And sort of like another sort of sign that people would perhaps be in that suicide space. And so, in that, what would the parent or parents do if they had actually walked in and the child was actually engaged in self-injurious behavior. See, that is it. So will we address it? Will we just say, set it, you know, play, That's absolutely say, true. You know, it's like, wonderful is because that, like, the yeah. dialogue must be open and vulnerable and real because at-risk children require honest, vulnerable speech with someone, a mentor, a, a priest, a rabbi, a teacher, a coach, if not mom and dad. Oftentimes moms and dads are not around. These children may come from disenfranchised families where there's only one parent or the parents themselves are involved in their own form of depression. But when you talk, when you talk about depression, and Everett, Everett's daughter, they mm -hmm. found medication, antidepressant anti medication. Some people blame medications for those yeah. types of things. It's hard to tell because some of us think that the, the use of the medication is the etiology of the suicide, and others think that, well, maybe the medication was mismanaged, not taken every single day, and therefore the depression got stronger. Let's understand that ma medicine itself is not going to cause suicide, but not taking it properly could be a real problem. And you talk about not taking it properly, and, and, and Everett, I'm sure you dealt with this many times during your law enforcement career, is you look at all the substances, especially that our young people are ingesting, Absolutely. between the, you know, smoking, which they don't know what they're smoking, vaping, hookahs, all of these things, pills, people, that, that's out there, and then, and then just the regular regular alcohol. And then the opiates, which become cellularly right. addictive, at which point suicide is almost a um, frighteningly to say, it's almost like a time-released suicide because they can't stop themselves. Like a way out, is or what you're saying? Or they don't even realize that they're on their way out. It's not even deliberate. Well, it's interesting about substance use, right? Because when post-mortem, right, when people have been tested at toxicology, um, they found that there's very little drugs and or alcohol in the system of someone who complete, completed a suicide doesn't mean that they did not have a history of it. And so that being said, what was going on at that moment that they decided within the last two to three days that they stopped? their use or decrease their use enough that it did not show up in the toxicology. So to say that substances in itself is leading to it, it may, may or may not be That's um, correct. May or may not be the case. Okay, very interesting. Okay. We're going to continue talking about staying alive and preventing suicide. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We'll be back right after this. Hey, what's up? This is your girl, Sierra, and this is Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, baby, and real people only on Hot 97. Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about staying alive and preventing suicide. Joining me for this important conversation, Everett McCain. He's a retired Port Authority Police Department sergeant. His 20-year-old daughter, Annalise, took her life. Everett, thank you so much for being with us and, and really for 
speaking from a parent's point of view, it's so important. Thank you. We appreciate it. Also joining us is Dr. Elisa English. She's a clinical therapist and work with many at-risk groups. Dr. Elisa, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. We appreciate it. Also joining us is Dr. Norman Freed. He's a clinical psychologist, a trauma specialist, and a professor at JTS Columbia. Dr. Freed, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. We keep hearing this term depression, but what is, Dr. Elisa, what, how do you know when you're really depressed? Because everybody gets sad at different times. Yeah, I mean, this is the, uh, the, the multi-million dollar question, right? Mm -hmm. Some of us can cope with depression better than others. Um, depression is alienation, isolation, no longer interested in the things that you once was, all of those sorts of things. Um, clinical depression, it depends. It, there's a certain level of chronicity, um, severity. And so um, people do cope well with um, depression, as, especially when they address it. Um, close to 150 million people worldwide suffer from depression, so that means that's a lot of people, and they're amongst all of us, and they're doing fine. What we're talking about is that small cohort of individuals that for whatever reason have now moved to something much more devastating with a very poor outcome like suicide. Dr. Norman, what about that? I, I appreciate that so much, Elisa, and I want to add that it's, it's really a misnomer when we say depression is about the emotions because vegetative symptoms of depression only include two or three um, descriptions of how you feel. Most often, clinical depression involves physiological changes. Mm -hmm. there's, uh, uh, there's more exhaustion and fatigue. There's a sense of malaise. There's irritability, there's clinginess, or for some there's remoteness, mm -hmm. there's a heightened level of a startle response. All of these are also symptoms of depression. Just being sad and melancholy, that's just a part of it. Mm -hmm. So let's make sure we distinguish what is in a clinical depression versus those of us that are in a funk. Mm -hmm. But I mean, and, and also too, things happen to people, like you lose a loved one, absolutely. you know, a grandparent or parent passes away, it's natural to feel sad after that. It's absolutely mm -hmm. natural. That's not clinical depression. No, it's the human condition. And we suffer through the trauma and the, and the grief work for as long as we can. And we know that grief has its own calendar. It starts when it starts and its end is as of yet undetermined. But this is a different type of grief. This is a depression that is more physical as much as it's emotional. We need to be on the lookout for those types of signs. And interestingly, what, physical signs? The physical signs, the fatigue, the malaise, the, the lack of interest in ordinary activities. Or things that they usually liked? Exactly. Poor concentration, uh, fights with friends that they used to get along with, changes in appetite, changes in sleep, changes in libido. These are all physical symptoms of depression, unlike being in a funk. And everybody, we all suffer through the sadnesses of life, but we don't have to suffer through the depressions of life. There are ways that we so can you, get So there's a difference between sadness and depression. Absolutely. So when somebody goes, oh, I'm really depressed, I just flunked that test. That's right, that's right. It's that's a, a different term, and we, we overuse these terms. They become even hackneyed and overused, but we still have to take the clinical signs more seriously. Dr. Lisa, what did you want to yeah, say? Yeah, well, we also need to think about the duration. So if things have been lingering on for a couple of days, that's one thing. But a couple of months, that's enough, that's right? Thank you and for so that. I just want to so for, add that. So people should pay attention to the yeah, duration, because yeah, a duration couple days, because, obviously, yeah. they're going to be whatever. Yeah. I can be in and a then, funk for two or three then, days, and a real funk, but then I can I also be. think it's, yeah. it's important that we recognize that, that those that are in the deepest part of a clinical depression don't have the energy to actually go through the act of killing themselves. It's those that are beginning to come out of the depression that might still feel sad, but have some physical ability to act on that, that we have to worry about, which is why when people say, I think I wanted to kill myself, we must take it seriously. All right, so, and we're gonna talk about that, and if you have and anybody- And we also need to think about access. 
So even though we have the thought, we also have to have the access, well, the to, access the to the means. And I just want to give out that number again, 1-800-273-TALK. Um, it's the National Institute of Mental Health, CDC. They have 24-hour, uh, seven-day-a-week counselors available to talk anonymously, free of charge, if you or anyone close to you is, think is thinking about suicide. Um, Everett, tell us about one of the things that happens when somebody loses their life, and, and you went through this with, with Annalise, mm -hmm. with your daughter, is all of the people that are in their life, the friends, the classmates, the other family members, they're traumatized by this too. Tell us what you learned from going through that process. I mean, everybody was obviously naturally sad, and everybody's questioning and wondering why did she do this. I mean, she seemed like she had so much going for her. And, but, you know, you see what somebody has going for them on the outside, but you don't know what they're dealing with on the inside. I mean, she was going into a senior year in college. She was going to graduate, about to graduate, which her school actually did graduate her posthumously. Oh, that's great. But, I mean, she had a lot of friends, even though she used to tell me, well, they're not my friends. Well, if you had seen all these people at your funeral and at your wake crying their eyes out, yeah, you did have friends. But she would say, well, they're not my friends, Dad. I'm like, yeah, well, they obviously were her friends. But she didn't realize that, I guess. Maybe her self-esteem was not where it should have been. So, so when you, Dr. Norman, when you hear that, yeah. and then, well, so all the people, and especially with, with this, the situation with these kids, because I've, I've heard just, just anecdotally, yeah. you know, different people with their kids in, in very good schools, too. It's, it's just their 11-year-old, mm -hmm. um, 12-year-old takes, their, takes right. their own life. And then the class is traumatized. The families are traumatized. Other kids are traumatized because they don't quite understand what it's all about. I think it's very important, and I appreciate what you said, Everett, about your daughter, because, Annalise, because it's very important that we recognize that it doesn't matter what others see about your life. Mm -hmm. It matters what you see what about yourself. Felt. So you're so saying Anna, even though there were hundreds of hundreds of kids crying and loving her, Annalise she might not, may have, not have felt that way. And so we must understand oh, what the experience of depression is like to the child or teen themselves, because their personal journey is going to direct and dictate whether or not they're going to be more interested in doing this. I also want to add, Everett, that this, the, the family dynamic that's left is one sometimes of guilt. Could I have known more? Should I have heard the signs more? And there's also anger, and it's really okay to have that anger. We are at times angry with our, our loved ones for having taken their own lives and putting us in a situation which forevermore we will be I traumatized I think people get angry when, the, when, the person, when a loved one dies, just that, for whatever we, reason. And it's okay to feel that anger because this is not the way we expect life to be. And we have to continue the task of living long after those have left us. And whether it's anger or guilt or bartering or just plain sadness, these are welcome emotions. Dr. Dr. Lisa, what about that? Yeah, and I also think there's another thing we need to move away from and this whole idea of that the person who committed suicide was selfish. Like we hear that all the time. Like they yes. were selfish. Selfish because of what? Because they left behind all these people who cared and loved right, them. Right. But that's not the point. 
what they were actually selfish for, from themselves, that right. they didn't love themselves enough or they couldn't find internally the beauty within themselves so that they can come out of that dark space. I, I so appreciate what you say, and when I use the word selfish, I speak in the name of those who felt that way as survivors of someone who succeeded. But a lot of people but, say that. Right. But you hear, because you hear we that. feel it. We right. feel people it. People go, oh, that is, was so selfish right. of him. Like right. we, and we've heard cases, you know, I mean, it, it's almost, a, I'm sure, like a textbook classic case of, of the man who's the sole provider that's for a right. family right. and, and then loses destitute. his job right. and then you know six months later right the, the, the how they can't they have to move out of the right. house and everything and he takes his life so people go he's so selfish at times we may feel that way but in terms of the land of and the journey through grief we have the whole table of emotions we at times feel angry and it's okay to be angry mm -hmm. at times we feel guilty at times we just are despondent and lonely and just miss the love that was right in front of us and we think how could they no longer be here Dr. Lisa, for the for the parents who have kids in that 10, 11, you know, 10 to 15 year old age group, and they're watching this right now, um, with their, and sometimes they watch with their kids, the kids are right there, it's like, what do they need to say to the children if this happens to one of their classmates or somebody in the neighborhood that they know about? How do you, how do you talk to your child about that? I think you really should use very simple language. You should begin to not so much focus on the um, tragedy, but you know, sort of focus on the beauty of life and kind of like really get to a space where you guys are rewarding and um, memorializing those things that are good about life. Um, I also think that parents must spend a lot more time having really good conversation with their children and active listening. Um, in a, in other words, not being part. with your kid for four hours and both of you are on your phones. Right, right. because that becomes the a whole time. Right. Everett, what would you say to other parents about what they might want to say to their children about hearing about a friend who's suicided? Uh, I mean, just try to have an open dialogue with them. I mean, if basically, they have to come to you. Tell them they always come to you with whatever is bothering you. If something is bothering you, tell me about it. And the response that we give as parents must be one of, okay, this is hard for me, but I'm going to take this because I asked you to tell me the truth, right. so I'm not going to admonish you. If anything, I'm going to be grateful well, for Don't your judge truth. them. Exactly. Is there no judgment zone? Do don't judge if they tell you that this is bothering That's right. you. you have Absolutely. To Dr. Lisa, uh, well, what, what, about the no, what about the no judgment zone and also the tendency, you know, some kids will lie because they don't want to upset their parents with the truth about certain things. That's like, they're not lying to be intentionally deceitful, they just don't want the parent upset. No, that's absolutely correct. I mean, most people, they say you should ask a person if, they're, if they have any kind of self-injurious or suicidal ideation, but at the, the honest truth of the matter is that most people will not they will deny it and so yes it will it, it's over time it takes time you can't just get this in one sitting or one conversation it's about developing that relationship and understanding and probe your children enough to kind of get to what it is that may or may not be but what about what, what would make a 10 year old or 11 year old kid take their life do they even know what they're doing at that age well, let's, can, can I jump in yeah. and answer yeah. that? First of all, the, the development of the death concept doesn't really come into play until around eight or nine. So children under the age of 10 don't even appreciate the permanence and the universality of death, that you, when you die, you don't come back. So younger kids will say, I get it, Grandpa died, but when is he coming back? Right. Or right. I went to the wake, why wasn't Grandma awake? Because that's concrete thinking. But at this point, at 10 and 11, it is unfortunately something that goes in the minds of, of young adults and, and, and children of this age. And we want to be able to say, 
to them, go ahead and tell me your story. I can take it. I'm not going to be scared. This is a, an important topic, and I am your parent, and I can hear it, and I will help you so that they don't have to feel as if they can't that, that, share that they're their gonna story. Be that they're going to be judged. This is Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We'll be right back. Yo, yo, what's yo, up? Yo, this what's is up? me, DMC, and the place to be, and the only place for you to ever be is right here listening to Lisa Evers on Street Soldiers. Rah! Welcome back to Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. In this episode, we're talking about staying alive and preventing suicide. If you or someone close to you has been talking about suicide, if they just need to talk to someone because they're in a very bad place, there is a national 24-hour free talk line at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-TALK. It is staffed by professionals, and you can just give them that number. And uh, or use it yourself if you need it. We're talking about this because we want to find out warning signs and give you information so that we don't have to lose as many lives as we do in the United States right now. Joining me for this conversation is Everett McCain. He's a retired Port Authority Police Department sergeant. His 20-year-old daughter, Annalise, took her life. Everett, thank you so much for being with us and thank really you. sharing your experience because I know it's got a it's got to hurt to go through it oh, when yeah. you talk about it and, and focus on it, but I know it's it's really empowering and informing a lot of people. Thank so, you. so thank you for being here for us. We thank appreciate you. it. Also with us is Dr. Elisa English. She's a clinical therapist. Dr. Elisa, great to have you with us. Also joining us is Dr. Norman Freed. He's a clinical psychologist, a trauma specialist, and a professor at JTS Columbia. Ever part of the way for you to deal with grief has been this annual walk that you do. Tell us about that. Well, I believe this will be my fifth year. I um, do a walk at Jones Beach in October for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and I fundraise for this organization. And uh, throughout the year, they usually will post things on social media, sometimes in Instagram and Facebook, and I usually share whatever they post. And it's just a way for me to remember my daughter, but to also help out this organization because their mission is to try to prevent suicides, and right. also deal with mental health issues. And with, the, with these issues that are, that are so, you know, th that are, are just so pervasive in our society, yes. what, what is the difference? We talk about mental illness. Is our anxiety and depression the same thing, Dr. Elisa? Um, sort of, you know. What? One, <laughs> yeah. one leads to the yeah. other. Yeah. Like, I think another way of saying sort of <laughs> is that they're sister disorders. Yeah, they're, they're and that sad. those of us that are depressed might actually have signs and one symptoms of anxiety. So they kind of have an overlap yeah. of one and the other. Yeah. All right, in, ter in terms of warning signs, yeah. people are listening to this, people are watching us. In terms of actual warning signs, Dr. Elisa, you talk about the duration if they're in a serious funk. Not mm -hmm. to use, that's not your clinical terminology, <laughs> but true. Well, as we, you know, lay people would say, like, in, they're, they're in really down for an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. what, what would you say are some of the warning signs, especially with these kids and teenagers? Totally, when they disconnect from the things that they once enjoyed. Alienating themselves, isolation, I think it's important. Again, I want to go back to it's the stigma around mental health and the stigma around suicide that is the enemy to the cure. And so as a result of that, if we're not cognizant of those sorts of behaviors that are changing in our children, then we're not going to do the things that are needed to address the problem. So in terms of where somebody would have the the flu, or they break a bone, or whatever, they go to the doctor right away. Or the drugstore and pick up some. Right, I guess right. Something. it's not that simple. It's, it's so well said, Lisa, because because the mental illness is something that is 
so often hidden and not really seen, so that if someone has a broken leg, they can get healed and they are seen as someone who's impaired, we take care of them. But people with mental illness sometimes can be very subtle in their expression of their disease, and so we treat them like everyone else and don't necessarily take their their depression seriously. All right, let's talk, let's talk about the teenage group, though, for example, because yes. teen, teenagers, as everybody knows, is just... You know, there's different phases. They go through different phases. That's there's right. different, a lot of different moods. There are hormonal shifts. And, they're, and also, they're under tremendous, they're under tremendous mm -hmm. pressure. They're very busy. They're, everything is digital with them. So it's like, how do you know what? What's your baseline? Like, how do you establish any kind of like baseline normal behavior as this child is growing and developing and new interests, new friends, and especially then you throw in factors from the parents. They're moving. They're different you know, d different disruptions. How right. do you, how can you have real warning signs with that? Well, as I said once uh, here before, that if we first take a look at whether or not there is any new or recent trauma that may have occurred in their lives, a loss like a breakup or not getting the part in the play that they wanted or not, not getting, making a team, not making a team or not getting into the college of their dreams when that when the date comes out for that. And when that happens, that puts them at a greater risk as well. We also want to make sure that we take a look at the nonverbals, the facial expression. Has there been a, redu a reduction in eye contact? Is there an increase in malaise and fatigue? Are they not uh, being as tolerant of the way we speak? Are they snapping at us more often? And most importantly, are they becoming remote and removed from like the rest Lisa of us? Like Dr. Lisa said, just tol Absolutely. Totally, totally withdrawing. Dr. Lisa, what questions should parents be asking? How are you? How are you? How was your day? How's things going? Really simple questions. I mean, children, young adults will share. They don't mind sharing, but they want to share what they want to share when they want to share it. So you need to ask those questions that are sort of open-ended right. so that you can get the kinds of response that can allow you to probe a little and, more further. And what about some of these things, these practical tips that we hear sometimes like, you know, have have dinner, make sure you have a dinner with everybody in the family right. once a week where there's no phones at the table. Everyone is there and actually having a conversation with each other. Well, you know, we can get into all this conversation around cultures that eat together often and have this kind of familial time, and the suicide rate is as high as it is in the United States, so oh, it doesn't really, really okay. make a difference. However, I do believe, because even if you're at the table and no one's talking, mm -hmm. right, what right, difference that's even does worse. it make? Or, you're looking, or, you're look, right, or <laughs> we're looking at the phone, or I don't really want that. You have vegan, I have right, chicken. Right, it's right, just right. A, now whole argument starts. Now I don't want to eat it exactly. all, so I'm going to retreat to my room and I'll have my vegan dish by myself. Right. So here's a really interesting and important thing to recognize <laughs> as parents. Our children may answer the question, how are you? But for those that won't answer it, there's another way to get them to talk, and that is by Which is what? Which is to basically tell them how your day was. So I'll go into my son's room, and I know he doesn't want me in there. And he'll, <laughs> and he'll say to me, get out. And I'll say, before I do, I just want to tell you what happened to me today. And I'll mention something of a mild disclosure about my day, which basically says, I, I, I got a bad too, and I'm wondering if maybe you had a bad day also. And suddenly we disarm the child who wants distance, and we show him that we feel equally as bad in our own adult world. But another thing that I love telling parents is driving in the car is Cars the time the when you have the best conversations. And I'll tell you why I think Around that the music is. that they like to. But regardless of the music, <laughs> like truth serum. What, what, when I'm driving in the car with, with any of my three teenage sons, what I get is great stuff out of them because there's yeah. no eye contact. We're both staring at the road ahead of us. And what they just said a minute ago is a mile behind us. So it's not as hard to say and disclosure comes it's much more It's not like you're clearly. sitting there like right across from them like and, an interrogation. And that's, very, that's an interrogation. No, so the without, driving, I, I totally, it's the it's best. Serum. Oh my God. Yeah, and that really helps children 
children open up and they don't even realize that they're talking sometimes. But what, what about what about saying to your kid, saying to your kid, what was the best part of your day? Does, like taking it on a different, does that work? Does that have I think for a while or? it'll work, but let's not forget that the hormones and the, uh, the, the, the energy in the teenage body, the serotonin levels are changing. So I may ask one of my sons, what was the high of your day and what was the low? And they'll say, get out of my room. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to make everyone think that I don't get along with my kids, but I do let them express how they feel. So then do you, do you go like, you know who's paying for that room? <laughs> right, exactly, this whole house. That's pretty but good, I, grounded I let in them reality. Have, I let them have the dignity of expressing how they feel within the limits of what's appropriate right. for parents to hear. But in so doing, I'm saying, oh, okay, you don't want to talk now? Maybe later. And we'll come back later. And again, I'll start at that point. But it's important for them to know that you keep coming back. Absolutely, right. always. It's and by the, the consistency way, and in the, the way, communication. We can come back through texting. We can come back through FaceTime. I might FaceTime my son from another room in the same house. But any way I can connect with them would be a great way to it's connect. It's again. Right, right. Yes, it is. You know, it's something about talking about your own personal experience in life for the day. Children can also feel like, do I, can I live up to my parents' expectations yeah. when we start talking about all the things that are going on in our life? So I'm sort of thinking about that, like how does that all work out and kind of finding a what balance. About, what about that with children? Because there, there, there was a, um, a school district outside Washington, D.C. They, they, they had a very young uh, suicide happen there. And the, the, the person who designed, they designed a program said these kids are basically like nine, ten-year-old kids. They're basically like prisoners now. They're not, because they don't have undirected free time. It's like they have to go to school, they have to study, they have to take these exams, they a have to take these special classes, they have to be on teams, they have to do this, they have There's to do that. There's a lot of over-programming. A lot of parents are over-programming Is that really, they, can that lead to depression too Absolutely, kids? because it's not letting a child express who he is when he's all alone on his own. And teenagers, most often, more than any of the other age groups, really need their downtime to just come back to themselves. Where they just want to sit in their rooms, maybe listen to music, maybe look at the TV, but they're really just connecting with their inner self without having to be anybody else that the world wants them to or be. Or be part of a family or be part of a, exactly. another dynamic. And that has to be okay with us. Because so parents should let the kids have that space absolutely. and not feel like it's and absolutely. I also want to add too that, you know, during this time we have seasonal affective disorder, right? That happens because we have shorter days and longer nights. And they said that the suicide rate actually goes down around the holidays because people are socializing more. So what that that's I mean, I think that's quite provocative and interesting. There's so, another provocative well, finding to that study, which is that in the summertime people actually find themselves more well, depressed. Right. Because they, they say do. they say to me I don't feel as if I'm at one with the culture and the community out there. Mm -hmm. For example, outside, nature is, is, is basically conducting Beethoven. Flowers are blooming, mm -hmm. people are coming al alive, mm -hmm. right. and in my heart, I'm barely whistling a happy tune. Mm -hmm. I don't belong in that world. And so the, sometimes the happy place becomes a very scary place mm -hmm. for the depressed person. So let, let, let's get back to some of, some of these, some of these other, other warning signs. Now, talk, talking with adults, Everett, you say that basically there was, you feel there was nothing there was nothing that you you that you feel you missed. I hate no. to ask you such a tough question. No, but I don't think you don't. You really don't feel because you're also being a, a law enforcement officer. Yeah. Any law I enforcement officers I had with daughters were like they knew you know. Yeah, yeah I don't. I don't. Think you you I don't feel anything. like there was anything. I mean, I still question myself. Did I miss something? Right. You know, why didn't I see this coming? I mean, I do that every day, but. Mm. I didn't see anything. But coming. there was no, nothing no. that you can see, no. Doctor Elisa. What about in ter terms of other warning signs? You know, especially w with adults. 
Oh, yeah, certainly for adults, you may see an increase in substance use, again, a decrease in activities, an increase in um, giving away things that they once really valued that in terms of that was important to them, um, more low frustration and, and what tolerance. About, what about things. access to ways that they can... Access to ways that they can do it. Yeah, right. Access to firearms and other types of self-destructive um, items. Uh, I would also say just self-injurious behavior, that they engage in self-injurious behavior. That's, that's and that would include, I don't want to just say self-harm because, you know, 700,000 to, 700, to a million people have suicide ideation and engage in all sorts of, sorts of self-harm um, behavior. But it's when that self-injurious behavior can lead to death. And that is something that we need to pay attention to. And, and Dr. Norman, what about when you say, ask them the question, do you have a plan? Well, like, we is are, that putting if, in like if, a critical no, code red? Thank you so much for bringing that up. It is not true. People think that if I talk about suicide with my loved one, it might make them think about it. And maybe they'll get the idea. That simply is a misnomer. It's not true. That's the way the media thought. Well, yeah. we have for to really time. correct that. Because if we're at a point That's where we're we trying are worried. To do today. Right, thank you. If we're at a point where we're worried that someone we love is actually in the midst of a real suicidal ideation, they're thinking about it, we want to ask a couple of things. One is, have you tried this before? Another is, do you have a plan? And another is, if you have a plan, do you have the materials nearby? Because that increases the risk that we really have to be much more vigilant to keep them safe. And then we want to say to them, can you and I make a contract? Can we agree that the next time you feel this way, you contact me and I will be right here for you? Because if you can't make that contract, I'm going to have to call in for people who can help you in ways I can't. That's a great way to mm -hmm. say it. All mm -hmm. right, well, on that note, I want to thank all of you for being with us for this episode of Street Soldiers. Everett McCain, great to have you with with us. Thank you thank so you. much. Dr. Elisa English, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. And Dr. Norman Freed, thank you so much thank for you. being with us. And again, that number, if you are having thoughts of suicide, if you're feeling depressed, if you just need somebody to talk to or someone close to you does, 1-800-273-TALK. I'm Lisa Evers, your host for Street Soldiers. Remember, use your mind. It's your best weapon. I hope it's your only weapon. Let's push for peace.